Father God, we have come to worship you. It's an amazing thought, worth our full attention. So Father, help us to focus and to think well and deeply, clearly and accurately about you. Lord, move our hearts as you move our minds. Move our will and our desires. And Lord, show us what's pleasing to you and give us the ability to do that. And Father God, as I think about worship this morning, it, it dawns on me that though it is all about you, not about how we feel or even what we think about the thing or what appeals to us, it is about you. When all is said and done, it is for our benefit, which is an amazing statement of your grace, for you lack nothing. We do not gather this morning to worship you because you are needful of anything. Because you lack the attention that you deserve or the praise that you're worth or these gifts that we might bring. You lack nothing. But instead, you invite us to worship you. You invite us to draw near. You invite us to get to know you, to understand you, to, to enjoy you, to have our lives changed by you, to have our burdens lifted by you, to have our prayers answered, to have our problems solved, to have our weakness replaced by strength, our sickness replaced by healing, our aimlessness to be replaced by direction and guidance, and so much more. So, Father, thank you for the grace that allows us to worship today. May we do this in a way that pleases you. In Jesus' name, amen. Hebrews chapter 12, just a handful of verses today as we're getting close, close to the end of this weighty, weighty book. As we get to the end of Hebrews chapter 12, the context that I'm about to read is the final warning passage in Hebrews. You've already seen, we've dealt with, if you've been here through this series, you've seen a number of very heavy, weighty warning passages. The means through which God keeps us faithful. He warns us and he shows us the consequences and also the means by which he causes us, enables us to really understand and to and to question or to validate our own salvation. Do we really know him? These warning passages serve a divine purpose, how God works in us to bring us back to him, bring us to him to begin with, or to persevere us. And this is the last one, the last warning passage. Look at verse 25. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he's promised, yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. There's so much in this passage, and I, I don't want to sandbag before I begin, but there's no way I can mine all the depths of this, but I hope I'll hit portions of it that are meaningful to you and that God will use for your sake, and I hope also that this will encourage you to take this text and dig even more deeply in it for yourself. 
And as you're hearing and, and responding to this today, asking God, God, what do you want me to take away from this? What's, what's your word to me through this passage? So again, here's the context, this last warning. See that you do not refuse him. The final warning that the writer of Hebrews gives, both to them, the original hearers, and to us. See that you don't refuse him. And he uses this comparison. In the Old Testament, God had revealed his holiness and his justice from a mountain called Sinai. It was at Sinai that God gave his law, his permanent, everlasting law. He gave to Moses to give to the people this law that's a reflection of him and his glory and his holiness and his will for man. And he says at Sinai, he revealed his holiness and justice. But there's another mountain in Scripture. We see this mountain in the New Testament. Mount Zion, God's holy city, the place where Jesus was crucified and resurrected, the place where Jesus will return one day and establish his rule and reign. And there on Zion, he revealed his love and his mercy. And so the idea of the concept is this. If in the Old Testament, God judged Israel, and he did because they refused him, they refused to surrender to him, they refused to acknowledge him as God, they refused to worship him by obeying him, by following his law. If they refused his revelation at Mount Sinai, what he had shown them about himself, how much more now will God judge us if we refuse the revelation of God shown at Mount Zion? If the message of God from earth, here's my law, given through Moses, if you reject that, how much worse is the judgment if you reject Jesus, the message of God sent from heaven, God with us? There is no remedy for that. One mountain in the Old Testament speaks the language of God's law. It shows us who he is and what he expects and what he requires. It sets this standard for us that rightly recognized is insurmountable. This mountain of law, this wall of God's law, who can climb it? Who can get around it? Who, who can satisfy it? He gives the language of law, but on the other mountain, the mountain of Zion, he gives the language of gospel. Gospel. The good news is that even though you are a sinner, having fallen short of the perfect law of God, God has sent you a Savior named Jesus. Jesus, who was born into this world without that nature of sin that you possess, Jesus, who faced down every temptation like the sort that you have faced, and yet unlike you and unlike me, he faced them without sinning. Jesus, who went to the cross sinlessly so he could be accepted sacrificially. Jesus, who wasn't just martyred for our sake and for our sin. Jesus, who was raised for our sake and for our life. Jesus, God offers him in our stead. That's gospel. If you reject that, the message of Hebrews is clear. When you reject Jesus, when you reject the final revelation of God from heaven, who he is, how you can know him, how you can be in relationship with him, how you can live with him and enjoy him forever, if you reject that, there's nothing else. There's nothing else. Jesus is not sending or God is not sending another plan of salvation other than Jesus. There's not one. There's no other name given among men whereby we must be saved. That's it, Jesus. Remember Hebrews chapter 2, verse 3? How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation. So again, here's the first message. Our great salvation and the last warning. If you reject this, there is no more hope for you. There's nothing else that can be done for you. There is no other way that you'll be saved. There's no amount of effort. There's no, matter, no amount of sincerity. There's no religious system. There's nothing that you can give. Nothing that you can lose. Nothing that you can do that will make you right with God. Only Jesus. And know this, 
the one who once shook the earth promises he's going to do so again. Why is the Old Testament so important for us today? You know, I grow a little weary sometimes of modern day Christians saying, we don't need the Old Testament. What use does the Old Testament have for us today? Every use. Every use. Through it, we understand God. We understand his nature, his plan, his work, his great promise. In the Old Testament, he shook the earth. Remember at Mount Sinai when God gave those commandments? The Bible says the whole earth trembled, the whole mountain shook. All those people of Israel gathered around at the, at the foot of that mountain. They knew God's presence was there. They were told with the clearest of warnings, don't approach this mountain. You cannot touch it. If you touch it, you're going to die. God shook that mountain. But in the future, he promises he's going to shake it all. He's going to shake the whole earth. He's going to shake this whole world that we live in, this, this whole kingdom that people are a part of. And the only thing that's going to be left is this unshakable kingdom. Look at how Peter describes it. 2 Peter chapter 3. It says, the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord, that final day of God's judgment, his appearance with judgment. The day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar. And the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all of these things are thus to be dissolved or consumed, what sort of people ought you to be? If God, in fact, is going to judge everything, he's going to shake all that is, and only that which he chooses will remain, the whole earth is going to be consumed by his judgment, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. If you've never read the Exodus, you wouldn't know what sort of language Peter was using here. But he's using the exact same language. What God did at Sinai, he's going to do again, but on an epic scale, on a worldwide scale, not on a localized scale, not one small mountain in the middle of the Middle East, but everything, everywhere. Verse 13, but according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. This world will be consumed with the judgment of God. God is going to make a new heaven and a new earth, and that's where you and I, who, who belong to Christ, if you belong to Christ, are going to dwell with him forever and ever. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. At peace with God, living righteously. Why? Because you're waiting. That day of the Lord. For some, that day of the Lord is the most horrific imagery that you can find in all of Scripture. The day of the Lord. Who can stand on that day? For others, the idea, the imagery of the day, the day of the Lord is the most encouraging. For some, it's destruction. For us, it's, it's deliverance. All the brokenness of this world. All the sin of this world. All the sorrow of this world. Everything that sin has wrecked in this world will be undone and destroyed, dissolved, consumed by our consuming fire God. And Then there will be a heaven and an earth that's new, made holy by him, indwelled by him, and we get to be part of that. So the Bible's teaching us that judgment is coming. It's coming. So the, why the warning passage? Why does Hebrews have so many passages about warning? So we would know judgment. Warning, because of judgment. Judgment's coming. One day God is going to judge the earth. In the Old Testament, the prophet Haggai wrote about it this way. Thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while I'll shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. I'll shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in and I'll fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. There's a future judgment of everyone. And here's the big question that Hebrews poses all of us. When that shaking comes, 
when God takes this whole world and he shakes it, what kingdom are you a part of then? Because there are only two. There are only two. There's the kingdom of God in his son, Jesus Christ. The kingdom of light. The kingdom of his dear son made possible for us through his sacrifice and resurrection. Or there's the kingdoms of this world. There are only two. Which kingdom are you a part of? Ultimately, the judgment will reveal all that for everybody. The kingdom you're a part of. So that's the prelude to this text. The warning and the consideration of a kingdom. What kingdom do you belong to? An unshakable one? Or one that's bound for judgment and destruction? Now, let's make the leap, the segue here. For everybody in this room and everybody listening who knows that you are a part of the kingdom of God in Christ. You've been delivered from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his dear son. For those of you who know that he is your king and you're part of that everlasting kingdom, what do you do? What's the response of people who really recognize the deliverance that God has given them? In a word, it's worship. When we really see how awesome is God's delivering work for us through Christ and what it means, not just that I'm forgiven, not just I get to go to heaven when I die, but then when the great judgment of everything comes, I'm part of something that cannot be moved. It cannot be taken from us. It cannot be shaken. It cannot be minimized. It can't be hindered. It can't be diminished. It's perfect, and it's unchanging. How many of you are glad you're part of a kingdom like that? An indefatigable, undefeatable, everlasting kingdom. It cannot be shaken. i got to admit I'm watching this game yesterday. I don't know if you guys watch sports or anything. I'm watching this game uh, last night. And uh, at halftime, I sent a text to my favorite Alabama fan, Greg. And I sent Greg just a picture. I just sent him a picture of a goose egg (laughs) at halftime. You know, when you're watching sports, you realize whatever team you're a part of is not an indefatigable, undefeatable, unshakable kingdom. (laughs) You realize that, right? It doesn't matter what side you stand on. There's nothing on this earth that's unshakable. But God has called us to something so, so much bigger. What do we do? Well, catch this because this is so critical, okay? What is the primary motivation for our worship? It's gratitude. Passage says this, in gratitude for this unshakable kingdom. In gratitude, now that I've seen it, that's why I pray that God will show you today, that you would see in this text... What God has granted to you that he made you part of his everlasting kingdom that goes on and on and on. In gratitude for that. And then out of this sort of corporate identity that comes from that, we worship. Now, I want you to look at this statement just for a moment. Okay, so I put in your notes, in gratitude for an unshakable kingdom and out of that new corporate identity, we worship. What does that mean exactly? Okay, if I'm part of a kingdom, that means I've got a king, right? That means I'm part of something. Now, there are a lot of analogies, so that's something that you and I are a part of, the kingdom of God. The church is the means by which people are brought into that kingdom. But when we're brought into that kingdom, that tells us who we are. My identity is formed there. Jesus is my king. All of you, together with me, are brothers and sisters. He is our, God is our father. We serve him in this advancing army. This is who I am. When I understand what he's done for me in giving me this kingdom, and who he's made me into, his son, his daughter, a co-heir with King Jesus, out of that I worship. Does that make sense? Gratitude. Thank you, God, for what you have done for me. Thank you, God, for what you've promised me. 
Thank you, God, for what's going to be mine. Out of that sort of gratitude, we worship. But time out. This passage throws a wrench in our thinking about worship because it tells us there is something called unacceptable worship. Unacceptable worship. I mean, again, look at the passage. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship. Circle that, underline that, highlight that, put a star, question mark, whatever you need to do to bring your attention to that. There's such a thing as unacceptable worship. So if we belong to God in Christ, if Jesus is our king, our right response because our hearts are so full of gratitude for what he's already done, what he's doing, what he's promised he's going to do, we are called to worship. That's just what we do. And, and by the way, let me throw this in just for a second, just as sort of a, an important aside. When we gather on Sunday mornings in this hour or hour plus, whatever, who's counting, when we gather during this period of time and we call this corporate worship, what is that for? I mean, what's the purpose? What's the end game of that? You know, we sang this, this uh, song about worship this morning. You may have heard it from several years back, this, this song, Heart of Worship. We have the recurring refrain, I'm sorry, Lord, for the thing I've made it. What is the thing that we've made it? I say by and large, the thing that we've made it is something very self-centered and self-absorbed, self-focused. So we come to worship thinking, maybe not consciously, but at least subconsciously, what's in this for me? Because here's the sort of thing I, I will hear sometimes. Well, I didn't get anything out of that. You know, that sermon, I, was, I didn't get anything out of that. It was like nothing for me. That didn't affect my daily life at all. It didn't affect my, my routine. All that. Those songs, I don't know, I, don't, I, wasn't, I wasn't feeling that. Just, I don't know, that didn't speak to me. If that's your attitude, you've got the whole thing in reverse. The end game of worship is worship. If we have come together as a people and worshiped God acceptably, then we have succeeded in what we came to do on Sunday morning. If we've come together with this aim, we have come to worship God, and we do that, and he receives it, that is a momentous win. That's what we're here for. We're here to come and honor the one in gratitude who's given us a kingdom, who is our king. Not necessarily so that we get some good tidbit to live by this week, some good pithy statement to put on the refrigerator, uh, something we're going to put to work in the office this week. Now, all those things are byproducts. Sometimes we're going to leave here feeling so good about ourselves. Sometimes we're going to leave here feeling so so down about ourselves, and both of those, or neither of those, could be the work of God's Spirit. We're here to worship Him. You know, technically speaking, there are two different ways that you can commit idolatry, two big picture ways. When it comes to idolatrous worship, well, one way would be simply to worship someone or something other than God. We see this in the Old Testament all the time. The worship of statues and images, the worship of created things. The worship of man-made things. The worship of anything other than God. Well, that's idolatrous worship. And it's fundamental to the law of God. That we'd have no false gods, no gods before him, no, no idolatrous worship. God, the God of the Bible makes it clear how much he hates idolatry. But there's another way that you and I can commit idolatry. The first one we're probably not guilty of. The second one we may be. And that's worshiping God in the wrong way. 
Not simply worshiping the wrong God or a false God, but worshiping the true God in the wrong way. There's a way to do that, and the Bible warns against that. Now, this is the part of the message you've got to listen fast, because I'm going to give you a lot of info quickly, but I want you to think about it and consider it, because these are big concepts, each of them worth exploration on their own. I put in your notes that there are three examples here in Scripture of false ways, unacceptable ways we can worship God. And then, because I have the right to do this because it's my sermon, I changed it to four. <laughs> okay, so for you, you know, OCD types, there's no blank for this. So you've got to find somewhere in the margin or something. Okay, but there are actually four examples. I'm going to give you three, then I'm going to give you one more. Okay, that's what four is. Okay, <laughs> number one, have you heard the two-word phrase in the Old Testament, strange fire? Our friend John MacArthur did an entire conference on this and wrote a book about it. We gave away a number of these books a couple years ago when he was with us called Strange Fire. And the idea was you know, addressing the, the many different ways that we see the expressions of quote-unquote worship happening in churches today that don't have any historical, orthodox, or biblical roots. Strange Fire. Does God accept any sort of worship? Does he accept strange worship? Well, the phrase comes from Leviticus chapter 10. Two simple verses. Now, I'll read these verses to you. Leviticus chapter 10, verses 1 and 2. It says, now Nadab and Abihu, sons of Aaron. Now remember, Aaron was the high priest. This is Moses' brother. Um, through Aaron came the line of high priests. So here is two sons. They took their respective fire pans, and after putting fire in them, they placed incense on it, and they offered strange fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Now, we don't have a lot of other detail there, and there's been a lot of speculation. What exactly was this strange fire? But at least this we know for sure. God does care deeply about how he's worshipped. And we know from the bigger text in Leviticus that God had given very exacting commandments about how he was to be worshipped. So you have in chapters 8 and 9, the priest did everything as the Lord commanded, quote-unquote. They did everything as the Lord commanded. But then these two young men, did that which God had not commanded them. So whether this was their own expression of worship, their own thoughts about how God should be worshipped, their own freelancing, God rejected it. He refused it. And in teaching a timeless lesson to all the Israelites and really to everyone who would ever worship him again, God consumed them by fire. Now in the Old Testament, we see some examples of false worship that God judges. Sometimes it's good intentions. You may remember a character in the Old Testament 2 Samuel chapter 6, a man named Uzzah. Remember Uzzah? He was one of those characters. He was carrying the Ark of the Covenant. When it began to feel like it was getting loose and it was going to fall, and God forbid you drop the Ark of the Covenant, what did he do? With good intentions, he reaches out his hand to steady it, to stabilize it. And what does God do? He slays him. Why? He said, never shall you touch it. Why? Because it was the embodiment of God's holiness. And it was a picture of holiness juxtaposed against sinful man. Don't touch this. This is my holy presence. It was a good intention, but yet he was destroyed. Sometimes there are devious intentions in the Old Testament. King Saul, when he couldn't reach Samuel, the prophet of God, he couldn't get the thing rolling like he wanted to for the worship to happen when he wanted it to happen, how he wanted it to happen, going outside of God's law and commands and for selfish purposes, he offers up a sacrifice. He sacrifices animals. He does that which is not pleasing to God. And God judged that act. God shows how important worship is. So what we really don't know, why did they do this? With what arrogance did they do this? This idea, I can worship God how I please. 
I can bring to God whatever I want. Worship is all about me. God refuses that. And I think one of the challenges for us in our church, our church culture, the religious culture of our day, is we have so many people that are functionally illiterate when it comes to Scripture, the God of the Bible, so lacking in spiritual discernment, wisdom, recognition, that they wouldn't know if that's acceptable worship or not. And also the sort of spirit of our age has suggested to us that we just get to do whatever we want as long as we're sincere about it. And the Bible rejects that. So you have this first, this strange fire. Let me give you another example in the Old Testament. How many of you have heard of the golden calf that Aaron and the other priests created? When Moses was up receiving the, the commandments from God, the people began to be impatient. They began crying out to Aaron. They wanted him to do something. So what did Aaron do? Aaron asked all the people of Israel, he said, I want you to bring all your jewelry to me. We're going to melt it down. And here's what happened. I'll give you the exact rendering. This is from the New Living Translation of Exodus 32. When the people saw how long it was taking Moses to come back down the mountain, they gathered around Aaron. Come on, they said, make us some gods who can lead us. We don't know what's happened to this fellow Moses who brought us here from the land of Egypt. You hear that? Moses has been gone a long time. He may be dead. Give us some gods. We want to worship something. So Aaron said, take the gold rings from the ears of your wives and sons and daughters and bring them to me. And all the people took the gold rings from their ears and they brought them to Aaron. And Aaron took the gold, melted it down, and molded it into the shape of a calf. And when the people saw it, they exclaimed, O Israel, these are the gods who brought you out of the land of Egypt. I mean, can you imagine the offense to a holy God that is? A God who delivered them with, with power and might and glory. And now they're attributing that to this thing? Aaron saw how excited the people were, so he built an altar in front of the calf, and then he announced, tomorrow will be a festival to the Lord. You catch that? Aaron, with this golden calf, said, tomorrow we're going to worship God with this thing. What are the lessons? Well, there are a lot. There are many in that passage. One, you don't get to simply concoct a God. You don't get to picture God in whatever way you want him to be. You don't get to shape him and make him. We're pretty good at making God in our image versus understanding the, real, the true image of God. You don't get to do that. And what about enthusiasm? You know, what about people really being into it? The people were so excited. He had moved them. He stirred them. What role, what place does enthusiasm have and, and sincerity have in worship? Well, it all depends on what we're enthusiastic about or sincere about. It's, it's amazingly ironic. They actually thought they are going to worship God. Enthusiasm, what's false, is still idolatry. An emotional reaction, no matter how sincere it is, is not necessarily worship. And you don't get to make it up. What did God ultimately do with that calf? Anybody remember? He had them grind, grind it up into powder. And if you want to worship this God, then have at it. And they all had to consume it. They had to eat it, drink it. The whole thing. There's a second example. Here's a third. Maybe remember Jesus talking to a woman at a well. This woman was from Samaria, trying to divert the discussion away from her personal life and her need for moral change, her need for transformation, really her need for the Messiah standing right in front of her. She shifts the conversation to more of a theological discourse about worship. And here's what she said to Jesus, John chapter 4, verse 19. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain 
nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. What is Jesus saying? This old model of worship that you hold, it no longer is valid. This is a new covenant. The new covenant of worship is that we worship in truth, not in location, not in geography. The old model of tabernacle, temple, and place has given way to person, the person of Christ. If we're going to worship truly, it's not about where we worship, it's about who we worship. And what matters most in worship, what was he conveying to her? Truth. Truth is what matters most. How many of us today, how many people in churches today are gathering together to worship a God they don't know very well? Well, the Bible says it's truth that matters most. Do you know the God that you worship? Because the more that you know the God of the Bible, the sweeter and purer and more satisfying will your worship of Him be. The more authentic will your worship of Him be. Based on your understanding of Him, your knowledge of Him, it fuels worship. Doctrine fuels doxology. Truth fuels worship. The Westminster Confession says this about worship. Neither prayer nor any other part of religious worship is now under the gospel either tied to or made more acceptable by any place in which it's performed. And aren't we glad of that? Aren't we glad that we can plant a church here, in Kenya, in India, in Vermont, in New Orleans, in New York, and God is worshiped there? He says, God is to be worshipped everywhere in spirit and truth, as in private families daily and in secret, each one by itself, so more solemnly in the public assemblies, which are not carelessly or willfully to be neglected or forsaken, when God, by his word of providence, calls us thereunto. We worship him in truth. You see, worship is always a response to revelation. What do you know? I wonder sometimes in certain churches how they even can call what they do worship, because no truth has been given. What am I responding to? What is my response of worship? If worship is my response to the revelation of God and I've been given nothing to respond to, how can I have right worship? I'm responding to something else. I'm responding to my own emotions, my own ideas, my own feelings, whatever it may be. Let me throw at you a fourth one. There's a fourth phase of worship that God condemns, a fourth type of unacceptable worship. Let's just simply call this one the worship of empty tradition. Empty tradition. This is Jesus talking with the Pharisees. This is Matthew chapter 15. Some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law came to Jesus from Jerusalem and asked, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They don't wash their hands before they eat. Jesus replied, And why do you break the command of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, Honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. But you say that if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father or mother is devoted to God, then they are not to honor their father or mother with it. Thus you nullify the word of God for the sake of your tradition. You hypocrites. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. What were they doing there? What's the context of that real quickly? Well, God had given a command, obviously, that you take care of your family. You take care of your parents. You honor your father and mother. You honor them. You treat them with, with reverence and respect. You know, you love and you care for them. 
Well, the Pharisees had found a way around that. They'd established an offering in the temple, an offering that would take care of the elderly. And so their thought was this, if the people are doing what they're supposed to be doing and following this law and giving to this offering, then our parents, the elderly, are going to be taken care of. And God says, you violate the whole spirit of the law. You've created this man-made system so that you don't have to do what I told you to do. Whose responsibility is it to honor your father and mother? Yours. It's not our offering. It's not our ministry. It's not our program. It's yours. They're your father and mother. Honor them. Take care of them. Bless them. He says, by so doing, you're nullifying what God has said. And this statement is just so hardcore. They honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. That's where we get this term lip service. Their act of worship was lip service. They know what to say, but they say it to one who knows their hearts as if he doesn't. You ever think about that? You're singing songs to a God who knows your heart. You're making statements about a God who knows you. He knows the truth. They worship me in vain, he said. There's nothing to this. There's no worth in this. There's no win in this. What they do is just human rules, traditions. And don't we become pretty good at keeping those human traditions? Empty worship, this is mere form and not heart. Man-made, not God-ordained. So at least four examples in Scripture. This strange fire, this mountain, this idea of holy places, this, this idea of, of, of something we can create and make and worship with enthusiasm, or even these empty traditions. What does the Bible say is acceptable worship? Well, let me review just a moment. Acceptable worship has to be a right response to revelation. The truth of God given to us, and what's our response to it? What do we do with it now? We have to know the God that we worship, or there's no legitimate worship. If we don't know whom we worship, we're not genuinely worshiping. We're doing something else. It's an emotional exercise. So our worship has to be biblical. True worship has to be biblical. God gets to decide how he's worshiped. We don't. He didn't leave that to us. God did not leave the determination of worship to us. In fact, the scriptures give a lot of guidance to how we worship. Let me give you a quick and simple summary of the sort of guidance that scripture gives us and what we aim to do when we gather together as a people on Sundays. We ought to be reading the Bible together. Do you agree? Reading the Bible. I'm of, I'm of this belief. Even on the Sunday where the worst sermon possible is given, and I've given some bad ones, our gathering is not in vain if God's word has been read publicly. If we have heard God speak through his word, every time God's word is read, God is speaking, and we have the opportunity to respond to that. We ought to be reading the Bible. Paul told Timothy in his ministry, in Ephesus, he said, give attention to the public reading of Scripture. That's an important component of our worship. It drives me nuts when I see a, a popular TV preacher get up and give a paraphrase of half a verse of Scripture and then go into a 30-minute storytelling session that has nothing to do with that text. The power is in the Word. It's in that Scripture. Read the Bible. We ought also to preach the Bible. Primary content of what comes from the pulpit here ought to be Scripture. And the application of it, the understanding of the thing, and the right doing of the thing. We ought to preach the Bible. Paul was very clear under God's inspiration in Romans chapter 10 to remind us that faith comes by hearing. 
And hearing through what? Hearing through the word of Christ. Where does faith come from? Faith comes through the declaration of the word. That's how God births faith in us. That's how God grows faith in us. That's how God perseveres faith in us. All that comes from the word, getting the word out there. Faith is born. Faith takes root and grows. Faith takes hold and stays. We ought also to be praying the Bible. How do you pray the Bible? Donald Whitney has a book called Praying the Bible, cleverly titled. He says to pray the Bible, you simply go through a passage, line by line, talking to God about whatever comes to mind as you read the text. You pray those things that are there. When you pray the Bible, you know you're praying in alignment with the mind of God, with the will of God. You pray these things. You pray these things that we read, these warning passages. As you pray them, you pray for yourself that you will not fall. You pray for those that you care about. You pray those things that you read. We're aligning ourselves with God's heart. We're praying according to God's will. We just simply pray those words of Scripture. We bring them alive, and we see it, we read it, we think about it, and we say, God, may that be so, and we pray this. It's important for us also that we sing the Bible. So many of the old songs find their, their root in the Psalms. Simply singing the Psalms and the hymns and the spiritual songs. Psalm 98.1 says, sing to the Lord a new song, for he's done marvelous things. It's, we sing these things we find in Scripture. We sing songs, if they're not word-for-word word Scripture, they are closely aligned with Scripture. They reflect the truth of Scripture. They validate and reinforce, remind us of the teachings of Scripture. They're not something different from that. We're not singing different things than that. We're singing what the Scriptures say about God, about us. We sing the Bible. Today you have the opportunity to see the Bible. I don't mean just what you hold in your hands. We see what God has done. We, we do things, we call them ordinances. In some references, we might say a sacrament. But as Protestant believers, evangelical believers, we have two. We have two ordinances that we practice that enable us to see the gospel in front of us. One of them is baptism. In baptism, we're reminded of, of Christ. Christ who loved us lived perfectly for us, died for us, and was resurrected. The picture of baptism is a picture of Christ. The picture of baptism is also a picture of salvation. We've been crucified with Christ, and we no longer live. But in the new life that we have in Christ, this life we now live, we live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. It's his life for mine, and it's my new life in him. And when we do baptism, every time we're declaring the gospel, life, death, resurrection, the new life we have in Christ. We also see the Bible when we share communion together if we handle it rightly. Do this, the Bible says. Keep doing this, declaring him until he comes. We're recognizing the sacrifice of Christ, the work of Christ, the promise of Christ, the future hope we have in Christ. We see the Bible. And as a segue to next week, in the second half of what worship really is, because it's more than Sunday mornings, when we leave here, this time of corporate worship, when I say corporate, I don't mean business corporate, I mean body corporate. We are the corpus, the body of Christ, coming together in worship. When we leave this time corporately together, we ought to be living the Bible. Real worship hasn't happened if we're not living the Bible. James chapter 1, verse 22 through 25 tells us this. Be doers of the word, not hearers only. Doers of the word, not hearers only. You're hearing now. You'll be doing then. Be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone's a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. 
For he looks at himself, and then he goes away and at once forgets what he was like. You know the imagery there. What's the point of the mirror if it doesn't cause you to adjust something, do something about what you see? But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, this is the gospel he's talking about, the good news, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. You want to experience God, want to draw close to him, want to know him, want to be in fellowship with him, then you walk with him. You walk with him in obedience. You do it. What is God telling you to do? That ought to be our prayer every time we gather. God, what do you want me to do with what I've heard? What should I do now with what I've heard? Always. Now what? We start with the what. This is scripture. We start with the what. Here's what God has said. I try in the message to give you a sense of the so what. Why this matters. Why you need to hear this. And then you've got to take this now what. Now what? What do I do with this as I leave this place? With this whole challenge, this whole warning, this challenge to to genuine worship ends with this, and it comes full circle. It goes all the way back to the beginning. He says, for our God is a consuming fire. Why do we worship this way? For our God is a consuming fire. Someone asked me going out the door last Sunday, as we talked about God in, in holiness, righteousness, justice, and judgment and wrath on Mount Sinai, and God in holiness coupled with love and mercy and grace on Mount Zion. Someone asked me, the God of Revelation, like the passage you heard from Revelation 5, the God of Revelation, is that the God of Sinai or is that the God of Zion? I said both. He's both. And we would do well to recognize that, that when we look at God that we see both, that we never forget the God of holiness and justice, the God who cares about his law and he cares about his worship and he cares about the behavior of his people. He cares about the reputation of his church. He cares about the activity of his kingdom. And we tremble before this God and desire to live in holiness before him. But we also recognize the God of mercy and grace and love displayed in Christ. It's not two different gods. It's two sides of God. And how we see God ultimately depends on us. It ultimately depends on us. For our God is a consuming fire. So what does that mean? And I'll keep this in simplest and shortest of terms. He's both. So what does that mean? Well, for some, the idea that God is a consuming fire is a reminder that God will ultimately destroy all that stands against him. All that falls short of him. All that sin has infected and affected. He is a destroying, consuming fire. He's going to destroy it all. That's what Peter was talking about. This whole earth is going to be shaken, and God's going to consume it all. Like a sacrifice in the Old Testament, completely lapped up by God's God's power and might. So for some, the idea of a consuming fire is destruction. But for us who are in Christ, the idea of God as consuming fire is deliverance. It's when God's enemies are destroyed. It's when this broken world and, and everything about it is undone and done away with. And what it's replaced with is a new heaven and a new earth, and we are delivered unto that. And God, who doesn't consume like a, like a wildfire, like a fire out of control, God very specifically works to consume in us, burning up the sin, the worthless things, the needless things, preparing us for his kingdom, and one, one day delivering us from all those things so that we get to be with him. How do we see God? Do we see God on Sinai or God on Zion? Well, it depends on us. 
If you have Jesus as your Savior, if you belong to that kingdom, you can look forward to deliverance because our God's a consuming fire and we worship him out of that. If you're still trying to do this on your own, if you're still trying to find another way, if you're unconcerned about him altogether and in rebellion against him, then you should see the God of Zion. Because one day he's going to shake it all. And one day his consuming fire will not be avoidable. Which is he to you? So when you and I come to worship, we view them both. And we think about our family and friends in that regard. Some need to be encouraged today. They need to be encouraged that we have faith in a delivering God. Some need to be warned that judgment is coming. And you and I need to live in light of both. I'm going to ask if you just bow your heads with me and worship this morning. Worship is response. That response can be emotional if it's rooted in revelation. It certainly ought to be intellectual because it's based on truth. But it ought to be a right response to the revelation of God. So what is yours? So what is your response to that today? As I think about this, on one level, for some of us, maybe it's just the, the awe and wonder at, at our salvation. The more we dig into Scripture, the bigger we see it is. The more amazing we see it is. The more all-encompassing we see that it is. This is an amazing thing that we will forever grow in our understanding of. It's vastness. God's grace shown to us in giving us an unshakable kingdom. Gratitude. Gratitude. Maybe that's your worship this morning. Oh, God, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for what you've done. Thank you for what is to come. Gratitude. Maybe today your right response of worship is living your life in light of God's holiness. Because although we are forgiven in Christ and covered by his grace, we are commanded nonetheless to walk worthy of him, to live in a way that pleases him, that honors him. Are you living life like someone who lives in an unshakable kingdom, with an immutable king, a holy king? Remember what the passage says? What sort of people ought we to be in lives of holiness, lives of godliness? Maybe the reminder of the God who consumes for you today is a reminder to walk in holiness. And there's some things that need to go because they don't fit. They don't fit the life of one who's walking in holiness or godliness. And maybe today what you need to do in right response is to repent. Repent means to first of all change your mind. Change your mind about God. To recognize he's true and real. And he gives these warnings and judgments for you out of grace. You already deserve the consequence we all did in our sins. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, the Bible says. The consequence for those sins is death, which we all deserve. We can't contest that. It's grace through which God warns us. He doesn't have to, but he has. Change your mind about him. He's giving you this warning so that you don't perish. So that you don't suffer everlasting death. Everlasting conscious punishment for your sin. Everlasting conscious torment that's, that's just. But instead, that you receive his grace. How shall we, how shall we neglect such a great salvation? How shall we survive neglecting such a great salvation? What, what are you going to do today? Will you repent, change your mind about God, change your mind about yourself and say, God, save me. Save me. Make me part of your kingdom. You can do that today. What a great, worshipful response. God has revealed to you who he is. He's revealed to you what he's offering to you. He's revealed to you what the future is going to bring. And your response 
your worshipful response is, God, save me a sinner. I want you to be my king. I want to be part of your kingdom. What is God leading you to do in worship today? Father God, far, far beyond anything that I have said, explained, discussed today, by the power of your Holy Spirit, in accordance with the truths of your word, spoken to us by you, inspired by that same spirit, Father, move us to a right response today. God, shake some of us before the great shaking. Shake us now so we don't have to endure that shaking then. Somebody who needs you today, someone who needs their whole world shaken up, who needs to give up the life they're living and, and embrace you as king of their life, give their whole life over to you. Say, God, save me, change me. I want a new life today. I need you. Father, for some Christians who are walking not in, not in holiness, not in godliness, but something so different that we're denying ourselves the pleasures of Christ. We're denying ourselves the joys of salvation. We're denying ourselves the blessings that could be ours. And Father, maybe even some who have deceived themselves, deluded themselves about salvation. Father, reveal. Father, for your people in this room, for all of us, Lord, may we get a bigger picture, a better glimpse of this great salvation not to be neglected. And in gratitude, receive our worship, Fathers. We're grateful to you. Receive this worship born out of that gratefulness. We love you. We're amazed by you. And we're thankful, so thankful for you. Receive our worship. So now all over this room, as we think, as we pray to you, as we sing to you, be worshiped, Father. Be worshiped. Lord, I pray that some or many would be saved today because they respond rightly to your invitation of salvation. I ask this in Jesus' name, amen.